I am so honored and excited to have Farhana Shah on the podcast. She is a fellow colleague with English Learner Porter. And when I saw her course on working with Muslim students, I was like, yes, I had to have her on the podcast. (laughs) So Farhana, assalamu alaikum and welcome. Wa alaikum assalam, Tan. And thank you so much for having me. Would you tell us a little bit about your background, both professionally and personally, and also your proudest professional achievement thus far? Ooh, okay. So uh, here we go. So I was born in Pakistan, and my parents and my two younger brothers immigrated to the United States, and that was New York when I was about five years old. While my father had his undergraduate degree, um, uh, in mechanical engineering, he still worked two jobs. So I think that's the, it's similar story for many immigrants. Most of my schooling, um, including two years of undergraduate work was in Houston, Texas. And I completed my last two years of college at Penn State University in uh, Pennsylvania, and then started my teaching career in Maryland. My educational background includes a master's in education with a focus in school administration, and I hold several teaching certification. So it has been a great journey, I would say, of 23 years of teaching and leading. And currently, I am a department chair in a high school in Maryland, and I work with English learners and immigrant families, along with providing support to content area teachers in meeting the needs of our newcomers and assuring that they are successful in their academics. And um, as a community leader, I do outreach work to build relationships between Muslim communities and people of other faiths and beliefs. And apart from my day job, I do consulting work with both profit and nonprofit organizations. And uh, in the past, or I should say recent past, I've done uh, something on Islam in Africa for the Smithsonian and the Library of uh, Congress. So I've done a couple actually for them, and it's been uh, very enlightening for me as well to see the academians and uh, how much they've learned from the information that was provided. So it's just, I find passion in sharing, you know, authentic information on Islam and Muslims, both in the U.S. and the world. And Tan, you asked me about my, I guess, the, the achievement that I feel, I guess, most proud of. I feel like um, while I am passionate uh, in the classroom when I do get to teach, uh, I think uh, my work post 9-11 has been educating the the teachers and uh, the public about Muslims and uh, Muslim students so they can better understand them and uh, feel connected. Let's talk about, uh, could you share a story that has influenced your practice to this day? So thank you for asking that question. I think that that is so important in, uh, I guess, where I am right now. So to start, I really, growing up in Houston, Texas, I really didn't think much about being a Muslim. Uh, And I did not wear the hijab, I would say, probably a year, two years, maybe around 99, 89 is when I wore the hijab right before I would say 9-11 happened. So, uh, but I did dress conservatively uh, because Islam was a foundation. Uh, My parents, you know, raised the three of us on my two younger brothers and myself. However, a year or two prior to, as I mentioned, 9-11, I had been thinking about wearing the hijab, but not knowing how my path would take a detour, you know, in my ambitions to become a school administrator. And my reason for considering the hijab, I would say, was basically because every time I went out in public, say with my sisters-in-law, my mother, or just friends who actually were wearing the hijab, and I wasn't at that time. And often 
people would say assalamu alaikum just like Tanya said which is a muslim greeting which means may god's peace and blessings be upon you and um as tan you had mentioned earlier uh prior to our recording that there's the word allah is in there which is a proper which is a proper name of god in arabic so any um arab whether jewish or christian will uh use the word allah because that's in arabic right so they they would often get greeted by that and they uh, people would not greet me with that because i didn't wear the hijab and i used to find that very offensive so i thought okay i need to try this out so i started wearing the hijab in some places and not in others and um that morning i had dropped my son to school and i went to run some errands and i saw that a little girl was walking out with her family and i believe it was target um and she left their hands and as i was walking in she came up to me and she said salam and i think my fate was sealed because i never thought i would while i dressed conservatively i never thought i would be wearing the hijab so i i at that time, I had no idea, you know, 9-11 was going to happen. I didn't know that I would be asked to speak at public engagement. So I think that was being, I was being prepared for maybe a divine journey, let's say. So um, I think after that is, you know, uh, I guess 9-11 happened 2001. And within a few weeks, I was asked to speak to a group of people, and they were a Republican group, and they wanted to know about women in Islam. So some of the things they heard, obviously, was the first time. So, um, you know, I shared some things. There were people who were actually angry at the fact that we don't, as Muslims, you know, go out and speak against some of these um, accusations or the misconceptions that are out there. And I tried to explain that we do that, but you have to understand the Western media. You have to understand that trying to explain or educate people does not make news much. So that that still um, is a conversation that happens a lot in terms of trying to educate people that, you know, I mean, you have to understand, we we have a lot of history, you know, with racism, all of that. So we're, you know, if I believe it's ignorance that really, um, you know, uh, people think if we're not doing our part, it's ignorance on their part, and, and they really need to <laughs> go out and get <laughs> more information. So, Let's see. Uh, so after that, after speaking uh, to just just the public in general, and then as an educator, I guess when I started noticing the discrimination against Muslim students, the bullying that they were experiencing, I realized that I may need to hold off on my ambitions to, to, you know, go up the ladder and think about what is happening. And as a Muslim teacher, I took it upon myself to do something about that. I, in 2006, I decided to write a module. I had found a grant uh, somewhere, which actually the deadline had passed about two months, but I'm pretty persistent, so I reached out to the contact that was on this particular grant, and I said, hey, you know, I have data right here that says that our educators are actually uh, some of the culprits that are out there that are bullying, discriminating, and just, you know, harassing their Muslim students, and I think it it is most likely lack of information, correct information, ignorance, and I would like to educate them. So they did actually offer me a grant, the, uh, the grant that was there. And then um, I worked 
to write a 60 to 90 minute module that summer. And from that journey, so I even called my module actually a whole journey in itself, which started with the 60 to 90 minutes. And uh, from 2007, um, it, 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 was, it was that module. And I tried to facilitate that anywhere I could get my hands on, whether it was teacher conferences, uh, whether it was you know, organizations like uh, ASCD, which is the Association of Supervision for Curriculum Development. And, you know, I funded my own way to go to whether it was Florida, whether it was um, Ocean City to New Jersey and share this information. Then in um, 2016, I actually had a meeting with my uh, uh, equity director and in the school system that I'm at. And amazing guy, he said, Farhana, if you make this into a day long course or a six course, we will add it to our equity courses. And then from 2016 to, I would say, to present, that is offered whenever I have time because I have to be present to. Um, to, uh, to facilitate that. And it always receives positive uh, reviews, if you will, or positive feedback. And it, it is from those feedback that the teachers would say, you need to make this a semester long course. You need to, you know, mandate it. I said, well, mandate, I have no power over, nor would I like to mandate something like this because it has to come from the heart. If you are truly, um, a natural teacher, one who's passionate uh, about teaching and getting to know your students, you're going to come. But if, because I have been staff development teacher uh, for about eight years and I know what mandates are like, and it's very difficult to teach adults when they don't want to learn. So what I did after that was, um, I actually, prior to that, I had invited the superintendent of the school system, as well as the president of the Board of Education. They both came. And the former president of the Board of Education commented as he was leaving, because he could only stay for a few hours. And he said, I have been in many courses, but what I learned in the last few hours, just last few hours today was much more than sitting in those semester long classes. And then other feedback have been, you know, like all staff development teachers along with administrators should be required to take this course. So feedback was phenomenal. So based on that, I actually uh, decided to write uh, a semester long course titled Understanding Your Muslim Students. And I sent this proposal to the Maryland State Department of Education who approved the course. So the case, the aim basically of this course is to help break down any misunderstanding. It's about Islam, Muslims, especially the Muslim students and create an inclusive environment in the schools. So I believe that Maryland did a great job, Maryland State Department of Education by rolling out this course to a wider audience. While we are still serving this particular uh, school county, uh, it is, you know, the invitation is to all counties in Maryland. And, and this is really a chance to incite real change, especially, you know, for Muslim students. Um, and the hope, my hope is to push this nationwide, which um, I am getting to do with the English Learner Portal. And with everything that is happening, we know in the world today, we need to create safe zones for our students, especially in schools. If they can't be safe in schools, where can they be safe? And, you know, where students, teachers, both Muslim teachers as well, feel welcome no matter what their background is. So as I mentioned, my priorities have changed now. Now I want to make sure all of our students are respected and understood and that we teach curriculum, which is relevant to the students sitting in front of us. Um, and my plans are to continue to learn about Islam and Muslims. So I continue to educate myself 
and attend, um, you know, any seminars, sessions, conferences, so I can continue to grow as well. So it's about teaching and learning on both ends, um, because I think it's so important to build relationships globally. So let's actually dive into your module. Um, can you first tell us about the differences between Arab and Muslim students? So yes, definitely. Um, this is, I have to say, one of the biggest misconceptions in terms of people of other faiths um, about Muslims. So we most people believe that all Muslims are Arabs or all Arabs are Muslims. First, Arab Muslims comprise only about 20% of the population globally. Arabs can be Muslims, Jews, Christians, and they can all speak Arabic. However, a Muslim is a person who submits him or herself to the one and only God, whose proper name is Allah in Arabic, as I mentioned. And Muslims come from Asia, they're Americans, they're Ukrainians, they're Chinese, and they all follow. So one standard is that we all follow the teachings of Prophet Muhammad, who, who actually was conveyed the direct word of Allah or God. And it was the same process for all the prophets and messengers who came. And we believe as Muslims in Abraham, Moses, Jesus, David, uh, Noah. So, um, so that's the main difference between, um, uh, between Arab and Muslims. Because I have students who are Malaysian and they're Muslims, but they're not Arab because they don't, they're not from uh, the Arab region, right? But they, they're from Malaysia. So they're Muslim students from Malaysia. Yeah. Right. And we do. So most people don't need, um, know this, but most actually I have to take a step back. Our numbers are growing in black Muslims converts who are becoming converts their number their that percentage is going up i don't i can't recall it right now but that's going up but asians are the most uh the, the majority i would say right now and arabs would be somewhere you know near either in the middle or the bottom so we have uh black converts who are black muslims and then we have asian muslims those are the top tier i would say so the misconception you can see uh, people just assume. So for instance, I wore, I wore the hijab, right? Before I wore the hijab, I could have been mistaken to be uh, an Italian, an Asian, um, I don't know what else. But as soon as I wore this, people thought I was Arab, just automatically assumed. So we can see just because of what you look like you are you know, attached to a certain region. Right. So Arab is the designation for the region and Muslims is the designation for the exactly. faith. Exactly. What is the challenge you experience as a Muslim student in U.S. public schools? Okay. So growing up in Texas, to me, when I think back to that time, it wasn't so much about being a Muslim as it was being different. And people would often ask where I was from. When I said I was born in Pakistan, they would ask, where is that? So, you know, being a teenager, you're offended a little bit, but again, you have to educate people. That's just the mindset I had. So I would literally have to explain to them next to India. So that's, I remember saying that and sounded like a broken record. So I believe at that, that people probably didn't even have a clue or even heard the word Muslim. At least if I were to say you're common, layman kind of uh, citizen or American at that time. And for this, um, you know, as a, as, a next, as a young person at that time, the best thing to do was to assimilate. You know, you hide it, you hid, I hid my kind of my inner identity as a Muslim, even though I looked different. So I assimilated by, you know, showing that, oh yeah, you know, when it's Christmas time, I would give gifts to all my friends. I, if it was Valentine, we'd wear like, you know, uh, just anything that identified that I was celebrating that. So it, it was, 
uh, that was the hardest part, you know, your identity, which is who you are. And people, it is so funny now that I think back, couldn't even say my name right. My name is Farhana, the way you spell it, F-A-R-H-A-N-A. Very simple, right? Uh, but it was Farana, Farina. And I would think, where is the I or the E in there, if anything? So that has changed. People now can see my name because we're exposed to so much in terms of cultures now in America. So even, but I have to say, even after so many years of teaching and leading now, it is it is still sad that people don't want to sit next to me in meetings or be the first to say hi in hallways. And, and I could you not, it still happens. So I would say it, it may be due to wearing the hijab and I look different, but I think now that we are in the 21st century and with technology at our fingertips, it would it should be easier to learn about one another. This is the hope. So you share some challenges. What's the connection between your challenges or students who are Muslims, their challenges in schools and public schools and those students who are multilingual students? So many of our, um, so the challenges in school. So I would say the multilingual students, many of those are Muslims and then the ones who aren't, you know, recognition, respect, getting to know them are some of the challenges because we assume. So as, and I would say, um, department head for our English learners, teachers automatically assume that I have a magic wand. So if something is, the student is having difficulty with a certain content, they, would come to me and say, uh, one of your students, and I would look at them and say, oh, you mean our students? And so I would explain, give them some strategies. So that that in itself is a challenge because teachers don't take the time. There are some teachers who are amazing. And many of our teachers, because we have so much to do, so we have, I can't take that away from them. They have so much to do, especially post-COVID. I feel like it's getting even more people are doing, you know, more than one person's job. So in that regard, in terms of our um, multilingual learners and our Muslim students, the fact that teachers don't take the time to get to know them, get to know their needs, make lesson relevant, um, I would say is the challenge. I can certainly add on a little bit more about um, the Muslim students, if you'd like. Um, so I just want to share that when I started high school, I was asked to be the Muslim Student Association MSA advisor by students. And this platform at first start was used for like the Juma prayers. Juma means Friday in Arabic. And that's the congregational prayer once a week, just like uh, uh, Jews have Saturday as their holy day, Christians use have Sundays. Some Muslims have Friday where it is. And the Juma prayers are mandated in the Quran. So it's congregational where people come together. And it it's to strengthen the ties of unity and community. And, and so the students started doing that and it was a place for them to hang out. So they also celebrated World Hijab Day on February 1st in the school. And last year they actually had a table. Uh, students came and tried it on, uh, mostly girls, but there were some boys who wanted to try on. And we said, well, next year we'll have to have some, you know, uh, I guess, uh, kufis or hats just for the, the boys that the, some Muslim males wear. So, and, and surprisingly, these students felt like they wanted to create and administer a survey to their peers of other faiths so they can clear up some misconceptions. And, um, you know, that's we know the misconceptions are created by either ignorance, the media, and how we um, combat that is by building relationships, by sharing. And that's what the students did also, if it's okay, I would like to share two responses from Muslim students 
who shared with me how they feel in terms of even now with everything that's out you know, in, ter in terms of education and people can get their hands on to read and build their um, knowledge base about their Muslim students. And then I'd also like to read a narrative by a high school student who shared the portrayal of women in Islam and how it is taught in her world history class. This was about breaking the stigma, which is a lot of misinformation regarding Muslims and raising awareness to correct mis misinformation and harmful stereotypes. So this is a direct quote from one student. And she wrote that we noticed that the only time Islam is mentioned in our school year is surrounding 9-11 or in connection to terrorism. It is creating a negative stigma that we believe schools should be working around. Although school curriculum is never promoting a negative light, when it comes to Islam, a lot of information is always left out. I've only been in one class out of um, entire life, and I'm not gonna say the name of the school system, that have actively discussed the Islamophobia following 9-11 instead of focusing on Islamic radical groups like ISIS. And then another one says that sometimes when we are present in a classroom, in classroom situations or discussions, I've noticed that the topic of references of Islam in a negative light are dismissed by the teacher. Although I understand they may not want to make me feel uncomfortable in the class, I feel that the lack of information itself is more uncomforting. It leaves room for assumptions and generalizations. And I think these kids did a wonderful job in, in sharing their thoughts, very articulate. And another one said, knowledge is power. We would like simply more recognition and knowledge, even if it is general knowledge. Not a lot of people know or hear a lot about Islam in our public school system. This prompts more questions we've been asked as a Muslim community. And the narrative, I'm only going to read a synopsis of it because it's pretty long. So she wrote, and this is in the same school district, but in another high school. So in the past three weeks of taking the AP, so she, uh, it's the portrayal of women in Islam in an AP world course, world history course. In the past three weeks of taking the AP world history course um, at and blank was the name of the school, we have gotten into the different religious empires that ruled the world thousands of years ago. We spent a day per religion, thus not going in depth. We discussed and took notes on these main topics within the religions. The origins uh, spread, role of men and women, and core beliefs. As a Muslim student, I made sure I was super attentive to the way the information about my religion of Islam was portrayed. Islamophobia is definitely not a new thing, but due to recent historical events, such as 9-11 and the rise of ISIS, many misconceptions about Muslims and the religion of Islam arose. One topic I was concerned about was a gender role, specifically the status of women in Islam. A class discussion was held about a hadith, which is a saying or narrative of uh, Prophet Muhammad, that reportedly claimed that a Muslim woman's place was in the house and to be modest, cover up and stay away from men. The tone of my teacher's explanation of the quote was as if women were being oppressed by their religion, which is a misconception because in actuality, the meaning behind modesty for women in Islam is for the protection and uh, the religion views women as treasure and sacred beings. There's a lot more, but I wanted to share how the students are feeling. And this is just what, three students or four students uh, who shared their thoughts. And um, I can assure you that many are feeling this way. Sorry. You were saying <laughs> so, so, go ahead, so. I, I just wanted to add, you know, it's really simple how teachers can really, you know, build relationships. And it just starts with getting to know them. You know, yes, they're sitting in your class, you know their name, pronounce their name correctly. Find out, you know, what what are some celebrations out there? What are holidays? We only have two. Um, just keeping the communication lines open. 
Um, I have teachers who come to me instead of calling the home, you know, trying to talk. So it's just building. Um, and then not using teachers should not be using just like with any one narrative, because the Muslim culture and Muslims are very, not the Muslim culture, I would say the Muslims come from very diverse cultures. And, um, you know, this is how we connect with our students is once we get to know them. I guess what you're, the, the, the really sad, um, disturbing stories that you're sharing is really about representation. It, and it comes from teachers. So when we as teachers hold a lot of weight in students' lives and influence, and when we, we have to be careful about how we represent, uh, overrepresent, underrepresent, how we shape the narrative about about different communities. Absolutely. And because other students will say, see, the teacher said that, or said, see, the teacher's using this source that was said this. And so um, I guess your reminder, you're reminding us to say, we have to be careful about how we narrate around the students in our classes and how we represent them, right? And we have to be very careful when anything negative comes up. Absolutely. And I know for us, for us meaning as teachers, I mean, if we don't have social studies teachers be knowledgeable about those students or just in general about their content, then we are, um, we're not doing right by our students, let's say. We are, um, by not doing anything or not being informed, we are perpetuating a system. Exactly. Which it, absolutely. I think you put it beautifully. So let's actually talk about those um, things that history teachers and all teachers should really know, the misconceptions, and then let's talk about what we should know about Muslim students. Sure. So I think some of the misconceptions, as I mentioned, definitely about just the regional, you know, or as I said, Arabs and Muslims and they're not really, they're not interchangeable, you know, and that's how it's used. Or the fact, uh, I think that Muslim women are oppressed. That's one of the top, you know, um, and that Islam is violent and people have to understand we, we have a greeting that says assalamu alaikum and then the person responds by saying walaikum assalam and the the sound, I would say, the sound, and if we were, if I were to say the Arabic letters, that would be seen lam mim, which means peace. So a lot of Arabic words, you know, they're they're derived from like three letters, whatever you know, in terms of when you, um, I guess, just three. Let's say this three letters is it means peace. So Islam has the same sound if you think about it. Muslim has the same sound. The greeting has the same, uh, the response to that greeting. So Islam is a way of life and it talks and it is, it promotes peace and not violence. There are, there is a verse in the Quran that says, if you kill one person, it is as if you've killed all of mankind. And if you save one person, it is as if you've saved all mankind. So that is Islam talks is about being merciful. Even if somebody is not being kind to you, you as a Muslim should do the opposite of that because you never know what that person is going through. We have, um, we're told that if somebody does harm or I mean, somebody is not nice to you, let's say, Think of 70 excuses. By the time you get to that, we don't. We will never get it. You'll just forget about, you know, the anger. <laughs> or if you are angry, sit down, drink water, you know, things like that. So it does. It's about reflecting and thinking about what's happening. So that is Islam. Islam teaches and our last prophet, Muhammad, which I also have a, a, a little bit of um, content on him in the course, because I think that is one... He's a very, he's a pivotal figure for all Muslims. We regard him highly. He was the last prophet. He was, and he came. And in the in the Quran, there's a verse that says, 
I sent Muhammad down as a mercy to all mankind, not Muslims, not Arabs, to all mankind because of who he was at, in his character and how he spread the message that came down in the Quran. And even uh, uh, people of other faiths who've been scholars, philosophers, whether Gandhi, whether Bernard Shaw, they've all praised him and his leadership. So there's a lot that everybody can learn from that instead of you know promoting the misconceptions that we see or hear. So we just learned about the misconceptions. Let's move on to what teachers can do for their students and what schools can do for their uh, Muslim colleagues. Okay, sure. So I think the schools and um, I can certainly, you know, later on share um, a couple of articles I've written about how schools can promote that. But a lot, as I mentioned, is first, first of all, just get to know them. Get to know what their background is. Get pronounce their name correctly. You know, when Ramadan rolls it around, it's very easy. Ramadan Mubarak or Happy Ramadan. I mean, we say that, right? Happy Valentine's Day, Merry Christmas, you know, to students who celebrate. So learn that. It's very simple. And you have no idea how far that goes, just those two words alone. So, and then there are two, two hol major holidays. One happens right after Ramadan, the ending of Ramadan is it's kind of like a festival, if you will. Um, uh, it's celebrated similarly, you know, when we think about other faiths, uh, like Christmas, it's getting together with family, friends, going to the mosque in the morning, um, you know, wearing nice clothes, giving gifts. So it's very similar because I think the bottom line, when we think about it, we're all humans first. So nobody's going to come up with an, with an idea that's very different in terms of how to celebrate. So we do that. But, you know, happy Eid. And the second Eid happens normally two, about two and a half months later. So they're kind of, you know, uh, close. So learning happy Eid or Eid Mubarak again, you know, Ramadan Mubarak, Eid Mubarak. And it just means, you know, happy Eid. Yeah, knowing that. Um, and if there are, you know, if, if you're teaching, say, social studies or if you're uh, reading a book in English in terms of because now our curriculum is expanding, we are including, you know, diverse authors and uh, content, which is amazing because I grew up with just Shakespeare. And uh, so asking those kids, you know, um, either before or after getting their input um, and then doing a little bit of research. For instance, in the English, uh, it's a 12th grade English class and I co-teach in that um, mostly support our English learners. And we are now uh, reading The Kite Runner. So I had asked the teacher if I could go ahead and do a little presentation on Afghanistan, even though I'm not from Afghanistan, but I know a little bit of the culture just by way of being Muslim, because that's a Muslim majority country. It is actually a Muslim country. Um, so I did a little presentation. Where is it? So the kids could visualize where is this on the map, on the world map. And then a little bit about the tradition and just, just basics to give them, you know, a little bit of background before they delve into the reading. Because to me now, every time people hear the word Afghanistan, they automatically just think of Malala. I'm like, you know, Malala is not the only Afghani out there. There is a lot more. So let's expand our knowledge. So it's little things like that, whether I'm in the classroom or, you know, creating the modules as I shared that is a way of educating because I care about my colleagues. I want them to understand who their Muslim students are because, you know, we, we don't want anyone using misconceptions to, to, because that's not going to build any relationships. And um, you said school as well. Uh, school, I think. So 
for schools, I know we've I've had many discussions with, when I teach, and they talk about um, multi-purpose rooms having a place, so you don't have to say, "Oh, Muslim," because we can't really say it. Muslim students, you know, this is their prayer place. You have a place where kids, whether they're meditating, whether they're praying, whether they need to be there just by themselves, have a place like that in the building. So. Students already know and announce it. So it doesn't come off as saying, oh, it's for the Muslim students. Oh, you know, there's a room you can go pray there. Um, so everybody is aware of it. And then, and I know there have been some teachers because they've shared it with us, with me in the in the course, that there are students who, who if they needed a place to pray, they would just go to them because they've built that relationship. When you have that relationship, they are going to come to you. So um, those are just a few things. And if I think about in terms of supporting our students, basically, if you think about it, they're they're like any other teenagers. The only, I think, during the day difference would be, yes, when Ramadan happens, um, teachers are health teachers. Um, I'm sorry, PE teachers, I should say, are doing an amazing job now where they are so in tune with their students that they will make sure when they're fasting to have either accommodate them or have an alternate, you know, give them that option so the students can choose. Most of the time, they probably won't because they want to be part of it. And it's part of their life. You know, and when I'm fasting, I've been doing it for so long, it becomes a mindset. So you're not thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to be tired. No, you keep going. That's part of the sacrifice, you know, as, as a Muslim uh, person who's fasting. So I think those are a few uh, accommodations um, in terms of Ramadan, prayers, and, and for teachers, just basically, I think, getting to know them. And in my course, one of the first uh, projects I asked them to do is interview a Muslim, just like you're doing now. <laughs> And, and they, teachers, have found, I mean, at first, it's like a chore, right? Because you have to go find someone, that, especially if you don't know anyone. That's but they, uh, I mean, the feedback that I've gotten from that has been phenomenal. Uh, they, they share so much that they've learned. And, you know, it just makes it easier. There are people who are very uncomfortable. And I think that's a way to break the ice is when you say, hey, I am so-and-so and, you know. I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. So, I've been to when I go to school. Sometimes I go to schools when it when it's during Ramadan, and they say like, "Oh, in this meeting we usually have um, in this meeting we are honoring our Muslim colleagues, so we're not going to be eating there. There'll be no snacks because I know that it, if they have food in front of them, if we're eating, it's just it, it's not a very supportive environment. So we will honor um, our Muslim colleagues oh. and students in that way. And so it's like it's very very responsive. That's, that's amazing. And I think that's, that's, it's a great way to respect and, and show that you care. Right. So first, let me say that my own school district is doing a great job in terms of just even offering. Let's just say, I don't think anywhere I would like to find out. I know doing like a presentation here and there is everybody does it, but to have a course you know, be part of HR and equity. There are two different courses I'm talking about that my school district has. Um, and I think that, and then teachers and principals are actually, when they find out I'm doing this, they'll ask me to come and present at their staff meeting. That's happened over years. So I've gone to elementary schools, I've gone to middle schools to share, you know, within 30 minutes of, what your Muslim students, who are they, you know, who, uh, and then questions that they have. So there is progress made, but I don't know if that's the same nationwide in the United States. So it would be good to know if, if you know, that's happening. So it's uh, it's one school district sharing with, with another school district and maybe that'll happen. Um, teachers asking for it. And you're, of course, your courses. Let's end the well, let's go to our, second, our last, second to last official question. Um, Islamophobia is a term that is often used to create fear. What is, Islamoph what is Islamophobia and how 
can this be dismantled? So Islamophobia is not anything new from my own. When I started, uh, uh, you know, when I started my journey with this course, I would say, how long was it? 10, 12 years ago, I did not know the term back then. And I've been enlightened uh, through research and understanding that this is not a new term. There's a whole organization behind it creating bias, creating fear. So people who are not knowledgeable about Islam or know anyone, um, you know, are taught to hate, are taught to avoid, are taught to create or continue the misconceptions or assumptions, negative, you know, create that, continue with that negative mindset. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what it is. And I often think about it, you know, we have our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters who have anti-Semitism, then we have Muslims who are dealing with Islamophobia, right? So uh, similar um, in some ways. Um, so I would be, you know, I that would be offensive to me. Uh, and I guess dismantling, it's its its not an easy task. It never is. You would think we would. We're, we're more educated now in the 21st century. We have the best technology in 21st century, but we're not. I feel like we've taken steps back. And um, so, you know, coming back to the basics again is knowing what that is. And as educators, we have to start you know, at the bottom in terms of we are at the bottom, if you think about it, uh, in terms of classrooms change, that's where real change happens. And, you know, when you if for social studies teachers, if you have the content, get to know your Muslims, get to know that content well, and connect it to re current events that are happening, connect it to real time. So true discussion or authentic discussion can happen. And then, you know, if you've got 30 kids and they understand, then that branches out. So to others, sort of like, you know, you're an ambassador. That's what I tell my teachers when they take the course. You, the 30 of you are in this class, uh, maybe coming from 30 different buildings, you are now the ambassador. You can take that and then it spreads, right? So it's just getting just having the correct and authentic information and then getting to know and then supporting whether it's your peer whether it's your colleague and just continue to do because it's going to be baby step it's not going to be you know if, if it's been built on money and negativity it's going to take time to dismantle whether it's you know um islamophobia whether it's and where we still haven't even gotten to the tip of the iceberg, you know, uh, with race. I mean, look at where we are. So, and then this is all part of race. So um, everybody's just going to have to do their part, I, I believe, to to continue to dismantle. And I feel like, you know, it starts with education, definitely. Right. It starts with education and it's seen through how can we stand with our colleagues? How can we stand with our students, their families? and how can we how can we change the narrative how do we represent them in our in in our classroom let's uh, go to our last question uh, red light yellow light and green light red light is what should students do in terms of uh, working with their muslim students but that's a stop light that's a stop yellow is something that they should keep doing if they're doing it and green is something that they should start doing. And these answers are very brief. So one of the things I believe school systems, that includes teachers, students, communities, to stop doing is avoiding having conversations about Muslims, you know, Muslims, Muslim students, Islam, if it comes up in their content, and, and to connect with those students. And um, one of the things that everyone should continue to do is to build relationships, continue to build relationships, continue to uh, find out what the needs might be. And that may include, 
doing surveys because not every school district is where we should be with our Muslim students. So learning more about them through surveys, through building relationships with parents, you know, um, and that way they can continue to, um, I don't want to use the word accommodate, but continue to grow as a school system. Because once we know, then we know what to put in place. So, and one of the things that uh, school systems should start doing is making sure the information that they have, whether it's in their curriculum, whether it's, um, you know, current events, that it's authentic. And do your research, go to resources that are authentic or reach out to, you know, Muslim leaders or scholars who may be familiar with those resources. So have your resources that are authentic because there's so many out there that are not. So I would highly recommend that that's a place for uh, school systems to start doing. So they can uh, continue to build that relationship with the communities and their students. That is the most important thing and the bottom line. Would you send us some resources through my email and then I'll put them in the sh uh, show notes? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, for Hana uh, Sokran, for spending time <laughs> with us and sharing this, you're the, you're the first, uh, this is the first topic where I'm talking about Muslim students and I can see the connection right away with um, ML students. It's about when we work with MLs, when we change our, our thoughts about them, when we see them as in, in a different way, like they can, they achieve. When we see our Muslim students in a different way, they do become part of our community. And that's really the link between the two. So thank you Absolutely. so much for being here. You're welcome. I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. Now onto our recap. As English language development specialists, we know that when students are stressed, they are not in the head nor the heart space to attend to learning. In the same way, if our MLs who are Muslims hear a negative, incorrect narrative about their faith, they will surely not want to engage with us or their classmates. They will feel like school is an isolating place. It is our job as educators of diverse students to challenge a single narrative around marginalized people. A single perspective forms biases in our students, which then turns into actions that can harm students' fellow classmates and our colleagues. From observing hundreds of teachers, I realized the most effective ones create a safe, welcoming place for every student. That is what our multilingual Muslim students deserve as well. Thank you for listening. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. 